they, and in my case, newspapers have broken my heart at different points. Um, but I wouldn't change any of them. They gave me a life, too. I had uh, a ringside seat at a lot of things, um, some large and some small, mostly small. And they made me feel sort of vividly alive because you never know when something is going to happen. And you're the guy who has to write it down and go back to the newspaper and tell all the people about it who were not there. You're alive in the world. You're not just standing around leaning on the corner, which I have a real talent for. I grew up in Brooklyn, across the river, uh, and thought I knew the city. And when I started working as a newspaper man in the summer of 1960, I realized how little I did know. I had never gone to journalism school or anything like that, so glorious is that. I, I started out to be an artist and a painter, and I failed out of that into writing. And so the page one was this wonderful place, a block from the old New York Post. The paper was then an afternoon paper, so it closed uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning. It locked up all the type, and you'd have papers in your hands by 9. So all of us would retire to the page one, wait for the papers, and then these older guys would run a seminar. <laughs> I can't call it anything else. I mean, they, they didn't intend it that way. and they, Knowing them, they would have demanded to be paid. But they looked at the stories and they would say to someone like me, uh, you can't say that. You can't use a word like that to say that. Decimate, for example, to mean utterly and totally destroyed they would yell at you. You know, it means to reduce by 10%. If you say such and such a place is decimated, it's in pretty good shape. 90% of it's, you know, and they would go into that sort of thing, all in these tough sort of Depression-era accents because they were the last of the guys that went to work on newspapers without having degrees. Many of them never went to the university. That was a terrific thing for a kid, you know, who didn't know what, what he was doing, namely me. Um, and they were generous with the, with the advice. They wanted to help make you better. It was simple as that. They did it in a cranky way, and they, they were rough and tough around the edges, but... They were the worst husbands in the history of the world. The women among them were the worst wives that ever lived. And they were more fun than anybody had a right to, uh, to get in this life. They were just the best. There's not many of them left. I was a young reporter, and... I got to know some of the detectives after a while, and they got to know the young version of me. 
And uh, there was one I liked very much named Joe Martin, who was in, in charge of the Brooklyn South Detective Squad. And I was at some homicide one day, and I talked to him over on the side, and I said, what have you learned about the ways human beings treat each other? And he said, well, the, one of the things I learned is that the greatest killer in New York is not the drug traffic, it's not the mafia, it's not all the things you think about, it's jealousy and the need to take it out on somebody. And I think, I think he's right. I, I have a file in my files called Love, and it's all about man kills girlfriend, girlfriend shoots wife. He says it goes on and on and on and on, and I'm sure if you read through history, went on to a whole long ramp about it, you'd see that a lot of the human race was all built around jealousy. I said, how do you solve these things? He says, what you do, you find the last guy to see the dead guy alive and the first guy to see the dead guy dead. He says, and you muscle both of them until one of them confesses. <laughs> and that still goes on right now. You know, you some husband will report. He came home and the, his wife's body was on the kitchen floor um, with holes in it. And... Within 24 hours, he confesses, generally. Yeah, just for people who don't know the geography. Growing up in Brooklyn, Brooklyn was the largest borough. It was connected to Manhattan through the subways and through uh, two terrific bridges, including the one that's the greatest bridge of all, the Brooklyn Bridge, which was the first one from the 19th century, 1880s. And um, from my our window, I could see Manhattan I could see the towers of the skyline. I could see part of the harbor, part of the the Hudson River, Statue of Liberty, all that. But mainly it was the skyline that I remember. And my mother, who um, came from Belfast, <clears throat> she came here when she was 19, uh, we, we truly loved the city, and she loved walking. She couldn't drive. Neither could my father. And even if they could, they didn't have the money to own an automobile. For entertainment, it was the tail end of the Depression, like 1940, 41, 42. The war had begun, but in our neighborhood, the young men went off to fight the war. They didn't profit from the war and bring money back to expand things. <clears throat> so she would take us on walks, and this one day... Um, I should back go back a, a bit here. The first movie I saw was The Wizard of Oz. And I couldn't remember much of it. I was five years old. But it was the first one. I went with my mother. It was right on the corner from where we then lived. And I remember coming back with her singing one of the songs from the movie 
the lyrics of which that I could remember were because, 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 because. And so a few months later, she took us for this walk, uh, me and took me and my brother Tom, who was two years younger, and we, we took this long walk down to the approaches of the Brooklyn Bridge, and it was morning. It must have been 8.30 or 9 in the morning, and we started walking across the bridge, and we had never done this before. And the bridge, if you, if you know it, it rises so that there's a peak. It's a long, extended curve as it goes up with those wonderful suspension c- cables going against the curve. And we started walking up, and then I saw the skyline, really, for the first time. And because it was morning, the sun was at our backs, and the skyline was literally gilded. It was all golden, and I didn't know what it was. And um, my mother told me about this later. I wasn't taking notes at, at five, unfortunately. And I said, what is it? What is it? All these golden towers. And she said, you've seen it before, Peter. It's Oz. And it was. My brother, Tommy, and I got to figure the subway out. In 1945, in the summer, I was then 10, an airplane, a B-25, flew into the Empire State Building, you know, and of course, to us, that was the King Kong Building, you know how, what? And it was before television, and we heard this on the radio, it was a Saturday morning in August, foggy, strange out. And we said, let's go. And off we went. We thought nothing of, of leaving Brooklyn, going down into the subway, where for kids our age it was three cents to get on the train. And off we went to 34th Street. I always think of it as my first assignment. And, and where there were cops and firemen and people distraught. And you could see this airplane sticking out of the building. So in that sense, we already by 10, um, we felt it was part of our world. Um, and I think having that gave me a different sense of it. I felt by the time I, I was going there on my own at 14 or 15, I never felt the sense of menace. I never felt, and I'm sure they were around, but I never felt that there were, like, sexual predators waiting to pull me into a hallway and do unspeakable things to me. I never felt that. I felt it was New York. That's where we live.
fifth, turn third, right? Yeah, fifty fourth and third is okay for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're now in the back room of P.J. Clark's, one of the institutions of New York, in a three-story building that defied being torn down by the skyscrapers next door. Uh, a place famous for its hamburgers and... Loudness, as you can tell by the background sounds. In uh, a place that uh, I used to spend a lot more time, particularly when I was drinking, 30 odd years ago. I got a little story. I think So it was the kind of place that if a celebrity came in, uh, they were never allowed to be approached by the customers. You know, they'd throw the customer out if they made a pest out of themselves with autographs and stuff like that. Uh, and so there's none of that. And so ordinary citizens and customers could feel equally, uh, and uh, celebrities could feel equally comfortable in the place. Put another nickel in the machine. Feeling so bad. Can't you make the music easy and sad? Uh, this is from my book. Why Sinatra Matters, published a few years ago. And it describes a scene with Sinatra and some other people in 1970 at P.J. Clark's. Um, uh, Sinatra's in there, and it suddenly hears his own voice on the jukebox. The man singing for the lonesome men at the bar was at our table, or more precisely, we were at his table. Any time Frank Sinatra sat down at a table became his table. On this night, he was in New York for a concert, and he was in good spirits. To begin with, the hands of the clock had passed 12, and he was in a large city, specifically the hard, wounded metropolis of New York. For decades now, Sinatra had defined the glamour of the urban night, was both a time and a place. To inhabit the night, to be one of the restless creatures, was a small act of defiance, a shared declaration of freedom, a refusal to play by all those conventional rules that insisted on men and women rising at seven in the morning, leaving for work at eight, and falling exhausted into bed at ten o'clock that night. In his music, Sinatra gave voice to all those who believed that the most intense living begins at midnight. Show people, bartenders and sporting women, gamblers, detectives and gangsters, small winners and big losers, artists and newspaper men. If you love someone who did not love you back, you could always walk into a saloon, 
put your money on the bar, and listen to Sinatra. So make it one for my baby And one more for the road The long It's so long The long Very long But when he came to New York, he, he would call up and I'd go meet him someplace. Um, he, he was wary of the press, and there were these scuffles with the press over the years, you know, gossip columnists and photographers stuff. I never saw that. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. But I think what he was starved for in California was the kind of talk we, he could find only in New York. And his life might have been entirely different if he'd stayed in New York and not gone into the isolation of living in a big house, uh, which was essentially a fortress in California, walled off from a lot of people. Um, and he was very intelligent. It's one of the things that seldom came out. Um, and and he was pretty straight about this mob stuff. You know, he was not obviously the creation of the mob, or they would have created 20 of them. The only thing the mob cares about is money. Uh, he, they couldn't create an artist. They don't know how to do that. Um, but I think they were amused by him, and they he, he was amused by them. And they wanted to be seen in his company, you know. So there's photographs of him with three hoodlums or something. It doesn't mean they were doing business. It means they wanted the photograph to take back to Brooklyn and show, yeah, me and Frank, you know. Um, but when I saw him, he was always courteous to waiters and people like that, not just simply to people he he knew. Um, and he was, you'd see him around with various young women. He was always gallant in public with them. He wasn't a, a jerk. You know, he knew how you're supposed to behave. And yet I, I'm sure that other side was there too, you know, the dark side. And that's what makes him interesting, you know. It's there with a lot of artists. It was there with Brando, for example. Uh, and it's there with De Niro. You know, you could never run them for president. The kind of people you run for president are people like Ronald Reagan. You know, has no dark side. It was no, no no side. It was all sunshine, and it's always eleven o'clock in the morning. Whereas with Sinatra, it's always two o'clock in the morning. Um, and I I liked him very much when I knew him. After he got married, the last time I didn't see much of him because he didn't come to New York alone very much. He would come to concerts and ask me to come, and I'd go to the concerts and see him backstage, but he wasn't going out to saloons with his wife around. Uh, you know, Faulkner was once asked about Mississippi, and he said, 
you love Mississippi in spite of, not because. And Sinatra, I think, is one of those kind of people, in spite of certain things. Uh, he's still someone of value, and I think as a popular artist, uh, amazingly important, because it brought, just in American music, it brought an urban sound into the music. It wasn't there before. You know, the sound of a city, the accents and rhythms of a city weren't there before. Bing Crosby is wonderful, but he was not, he was from area code 800, not from Hoboken or New York or Chicago. He, you know, there were certain uh, performers before Sinatra who were stars and were good, but they, they didn't bring the city into the, into the wider consciousness. Somewhere in the next block there's a there's a Hamel place. And it was named after a guy literally whose name was Pete Hamel who was a politician in the 20s and 30s and must have been the go-to guy if you needed a bail bondsman or get your son out of jail or something. And he was very connected with everybody. And when I first became a reporter, these old, old cops, lieutenants and so on, I'd tell them who I was and they'd say, are you related to D. Pete Hamill? And at first, I didn't know what they were talking about. When I realized, I'd say, yeah, he was my uncle. And I'd say, come here. You know, and they'd tell me something they wouldn't tell the other reporters. They were funny. Here's today's papers. You can't beat this. The Daily News page one cover is uh, Mansion Murder Mystery. Who is this petite young woman whose body was dumped on Long Island's Tony North Shore? And the post is Gatsby Murder Mystery. Wealthy town jolted by sleigh. They explain inside that the town where it took place is where most of the great Gatsby took place. Murder at a good address. You can't beat it. I became editor of two of the city's tabloids. One was the New York Post, where I started my career in 1960. Um, and the other was the New York Daily News, which has been classically the largest tabloid in the country um, since 1919 when it started. Uh, the Post uh, is the oldest paper in in the city. It's now owned by Rupert Murdoch for the second time. Um, and I don't like the papers he puts out but I don't want the paper to fail either. You know, a paper that's been around that long will get through anything. 
you know, and eventually um, mortals put them out, and they, none of them are immortal, and eventually there'll be another owner and another policy and another attempt to stay alive. And I want it to live forever. I, I like places with a lot of newspapers. You know, I think they make each other better. And the people that, that um, benefit the most um, are the readers. They have some choice. You know, most places in the United States, there's one local paper, and USA Today is the second paper. Um, and I think in the times that I was editing papers, which which is not a long time, and it was mostly under an emergency kind of situation, that we, we tried, because you don't do it yourself, you do it with other people, to give it a, a jolt of energy, to make it feel like it's en- it has energy at the core of it without the, 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 the illusion of energy, which is what sensationalism is. Uh, for all that, though, the, the, the paper, when it's really good, the newspaper writing, not just mine, but anybody's, has an urgency that you can't, you don't get anywhere else. You don't even get it in magazines, uh, weeklies even. Uh, and that urgency is, is habit-forming. You know, there's a rush attached to it. The adrenaline begins to pump. You focus on nothing else and, and except getting this done as as quickly and as elegantly, in the best sense of the word, as you can. I could write a newspaper column sitting in a parked car, you know, and I have. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't write a novel there or even a short story. Um, you lose yourself in a novel. You come out, you start, you're writing some chapter in January and suddenly it's March. And you say, How did, where, what happened? Where have I been? Um, and surrendering to that kind of a experience is, is obviously delicious in a way. Um, but it, it can't be interrupted too easily. And I think the thing with fiction... Um, is that you you can put all the things that you th- know about the world but can't prove into fiction. And you can take those things and, and go anywhere you want with them, and that, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to, to think of the of, of, fic, of great fiction as giving you certain truths that are not available through facts. At, at this point, I have published 19 books. Um, 11 of them are fiction. Nine of those are novels, and two are books of short stories. And the rest are nonfiction. Uh, a biography of Diego Rivera, a book about Frank Sinatra, um, other small books where I've done my best to say something fresh about things. And the most recent of those nonfiction books is called Downtown My Manhattan, where I try to sum up many years of prowling that skinny little island.
The summer I was sixteen, I got a job in Times Square. I worked with a man named Butler, who was heavy, growly, with a whiskey Hell's Kitchen face. He said he was fifty-one, but he looked seventy. Our job was to change the show cards in the lobbies of movie houses. Together, we would pry out staples and take down the old show cards, which were five or six feet high, four feet wide, all in color. Goodbye, Joel McRae. So long, Ivan DiCarlo. Then I would hold the new show cards steady while Butler stapled them into place. Hello, Rita Hayworth. Enjoy the run, Glenn Ford. The sidewalks were jammed with soldiers, pimps, cops, streetwalkers, dancers, actors, musicians, and tourists. Where Broadway crossed 7th Avenue, traffic was a raucous, noisy show. Big yellow taxis honking their horns like staccato punctuation from Gershwin. Trucks and buses bullying their way downtown. And big New York voices coming out of the din. Why don't you look where you're going, you chump? This ain't Jersey. One morning, Butler and I were standing under the marquee of the Victoria Theater while he pulled deep drags on a lucky strike. Coming down the street was a blind man, complete with dark glasses and tin cup, but no seeing-eye dog. People dropped coins in the cup and hurried on, too busy for thanks. Then Butler flipped his butt into the street and gestured with his head toward the blind man. You see this guy, he said. You see him with the cup and all? Well, he said, the voice suddenly brimming with outrage. I happen to know for a fact that he's got five percent vision in one eye. I thought this life business is not going to be easy. Comedy show, High Comedy Club, two blocks down. Ladies free tonight, ladies free tonight. High Comedy Club, two blocks down. The next show is at 7.30. It's right here, Mr. You know, on this side of the street, two blocks straight down. All right, we got a full bar there. We got hot chocolate, whipped cream, coffee, all that good stuff. The comedy is hilarious. You guys will love it. Two blocks down, comedy show, ladies free tonight. Ladies free, two blocks down. We got the best comedians in this city. I used to love the sound of my brothers. You know, they would hammer, they would hammer away. And towards deadline, all of the people on typewriters, there would be this rising sound, and then boom, the deadline, and it was over. Total silence, everybody'd smoke. You could even smoke in, s- in newspapers in those days. That's why I can't use cell phones. I can't do the thumb thing. You know, I use them, but I gotta go like this. And I love the computer, it's a great instrument, but... But the 
As someone once said, the, the piano doesn't write the music. Mozart does. You know, you still got to get it right. The opening line will probably be, Ed Koch was a pain in the ass, but he was our pain in the ass. And then explain why. He's going to be there, too. I'm sure he thinks of himself the same way. But if um, some, a better line occurs to me before then, I'll use it. Oh, I, I have to do a speech tomorrow about Ed Koch, who was mayor of New York for 12 years and was an amazing character. Still alive, he's 81. On the advent of a big show about his work in the Museum of the City of New York, and I'll, I, I don't like to write a full speech because it sounds like Professor Hamill lecturing about the development of the lance in the early Middle Ages or something. Um, so I'll block it out in big hunks and then speak it rather than act it, you know. And, and it's a basic assignment. There's, there's a panel with six people on it. I'm delivering the opening thing, so I have to, it's like the overture at a musical. You know, you set up all the sound of the music and some of the pieces of the hit songs, and then, boom, you hand it over to the other guys to get into the details. And nobody can get us started better than Pete Hamm. Pete is a prolific author and journalist whose keen insights and extraordinary talents have earned him a top spot in American letters. So what we have, then, is a perfect match. Pete Hamill, uh, Ed Koch, and the temper of his times. Pete? It's hard to believe now, but when Ed Koch took office on the first <laughs> I know I must have killed 500,000 people in my life with my secondhand cigars. I don't give a fuck. I hate all the politicians. Mayor Bloomberg is running a little early. He's going to be here in 10 oh, minutes. So we'll right, I'm going to get time to smoke. Oh, I thought you stopped. No. Oh, oh I've stopped many yeah. times, like Mark Twain. <laughs> you know, and I follow all of his advice. Never smoke when you're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> He's ahead by 27 points, Bloomberg, in the election. Pete, all right. Nice to see you. How's everything? Too bad you're running so badly in this election. It's going to be a close election. Closer to 27 points, I guess. It's going to be a close election. You know, it's a... You have a big uh, Democratic-Republican gap, and uh, elections in New York are always close. You've got to work very hard. Some effect Stuff down there. You know, Things good with you? Yeah. Finishing up a book. 
we'll get together. Yeah. And, uh, I'd like to do that. Because yeah. I've got a lot of things to do for the next 20 After days. The election. Particularly with this young lady. Uh... I'm about to be uh, named a living landmark by the Landmark Preservation Society, a private organization that raises a lot of money for the landmarks uh, movement in New York, the preservation of the visible past. And all I said said to them uh, was, if I have to be a landmark, please make me the Woolworth Building. Because you can sit in City Hall Park and look up at the Woolworth Building and read it. It is covered with unbelievable, intricate decorations. It has uh, the patina of time on it and is still functioning uh, as what it was in the beginning, a place to... um, where people can come. Some of this, some artists working in there in studios. There, there are several floors of NYU classrooms, uh, and there are uh, people going about the business of of New York in some way. And from it, you can see the Brooklyn Bridge. You can see City Hall. You can see the beginning of the skyscrapers, you can see the 19th century city, you can see streets where Whitman walked and Edgar Allan Poe walked. Um, And if you turn and look the other way, you can see the void where the World Trade Center was. It's still there. When those two buildings went down, it didn't budge. And if you got to be a building, try to be that building. and I'm, I'm saying it, obviously, with great irony. It's the kind of award you get only by living longer than anyone would have predicted at age 21 when you were a young dope, not knowing what you were doing. Um, but it's an honor. You know, you, you get to a certain age in New York, and they start to give you awards just for surviving just for getting through it and not running away to live in Malibu and not going on the lamb to Florida to sit in some place waiting for the wind to blow out of the caravan. They give you awards just for showing up, as Woody Allen once said. Um, and I think that's a good thing. It's, it's not what the Brits do with knighthoods and all that sort of thing. Um, but it is the kind of thing that... Uh, uh, makes you feel that part of the journey was worth it. No, that, yeah, no, Birdland was. Uh, the guy's name at Birdland, the MC, was a dwarf named Pee Wee Marquette. And if the musicians didn't tip him, he would say, And now... Uh, playing trumpet, you got, and and on, and on the bass, we got, you know, and he would talk off to the side of the microphone, so you didn't know who the hell was playing bass or trumpet, depending on the band. And uh, he lasted a long time. He was, he was a, he was a terrible little guy. You can't even use this, but Miles Davis once called him half a motherfucker. <laughs> Which I think for a for a dwarf is pretty funny. Uh.
but he had that little savage sort of canine attitude towards him. He was good, but it, I think a lot of that was like an example of what happens in New York. Hey, beef, what's that? No more meat? No pork, just beef. Philly and I. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.